Welcome to A Thousand Tiny Steps. I'm Barb Higgins, and in this podcast, I'll share personal stories of great joy and tragedy and the steps that brought me there. I have become adept at tracing them backward to find the origin of an event, good or bad, that has affected my life. I have gone from being on top of the world with Division I All-American success to being unable to get out of bed with the grief of losing a child and everything in between. I am painfully honest, which can make people uncomfortable, but discomfort brings growth and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here for the podcast, A Thousand Tiny Steps. This is episode 16 which means episode eight of season two, The Life and Times of Molly B. So I'm recording this on December 6th and it won't air for another couple of weeks. I don't even know the exact date, quite honestly. Much closer to Christmas. In my last episode, I talked a lot about holidays and how the the feeling around holidays and celebrating them and not celebrating them has progressed and changed as we've gone through our grief. In terms of trying to share in a helpful way what it's like to lose a child and go through grief like this, I find that it's easier to focus on a certain topic or aspect. And so last time I talked a lot about the holidays. And so here it is Christmas. We had a much more normal Thanksgiving this year, although it was different and not traditional. I think in general, traditions are the hardest thing when you have a, when you have an unexpected loss. I also want to clarify, sometimes it may sound like I think my loss is the worst loss, way worse than yours kind of thing. And in general, what I'm trying to focus on and share is how I feel about my loss to validate and give credence to people who feel similarly about their losses or to validate how they feel about their losses. It's never about the value of the person who's gone. So, you know, my biological dad died at 98 and I miss him terribly. And I cried and had a list of things I would never do with him again and things I would miss. My sister Eleanor was a teenager, so it was much more traumatic for her. That death, even though she knew it was coming, she was a young person. All of her friends still have their dads. Her loss of the same person was much more traumatic than it was for me because I lived hundreds of miles away. I only saw him once or twice a year. We spoke on the phone once or twice a month. You know, it was a very different, so it was not as traumatic a loss for me as Molly's death. I also think when somebody dies unexpectedly, my spiritual mentor, Karen Kenny, lost her mom when she was 13. And so when you're 13 years old, you don't want to lose your mom. And her mom was in her 30s. That was a death that was traumatically unexpected, out of the norm, not the normal part of life. I often talk to people about, is it easier to lose somebody if they've been sick for a while so you know it's coming? Or is like getting hit by a bus, so to speak, an easier thing to deal with because your life was great and then it wasn't. It was sort of instantaneous. There's no right or wrong answer to this and there's no better or worse. I think all of it sucks. <laughs> and you know, I've, I've joked before about death and taxes, the two things we know about in life, but that doesn't make either of them <laughs> easy to deal with or easy to understand at times. And so I just always want to clarify when I'm speaking about events and things that I'm never valuing the person, the survivor person, the person who passed away. It's never about the value of them. All the people in our lives are valuable to us. And really everybody has value and adds to what makes the world a wonderful place. So I just always want to be clear about that. Anyway, (laughs) on to this episode. I'm going to talk a bit about things in this episode, items and things. There's a spiritual training book called A Course in Miracles. And in the very beginning, you do a small reading every day. And in the very beginning, the first several readings and lessons focus on learning how how to not get stuck on the importance of a thing. 
Like a thing only has the value you give it. So a piece of paper is a piece of paper, the actual piece of paper that has a scribbled note written on it with a grocery list or somebody's last will and testament. The piece of paper is no different. It's a piece of paper. It's what's on the paper or what the paper signifies that gives it meaning and value to the person that owns it. I've had a hard time getting started and really following through on that particular spiritual training because my relationship with things is very different than before Molly died. And I'm a person that has valued items my whole life, charm bracelets, and I collected elephants. And so in my life growing up, you know, I often would think, what would I take if my house were on fire and I had 10 minutes to get stuff out? And of course, pictures and, you know, trinkets, now my computer, you know, it's never, it's never oh, I'll take my bureau. <laughs> no, and it's never the clothes even, so much as the items that represent a memory or a person or a thing. And this is a really, really, really significant piece of child loss. I think any loss, quite honestly. I know that when I was a little girl, I, I wanted a candy bar and I took all these pennies out of the top drawer of this extra dresser that was in our living room or maybe up in my mom's bedroom. And I spent them on this candy bar and my mother cried. They were her Nana's special pennies. They represented her Nana. And, you know, as a little girl, I didn't understand. I just, I felt terrible. And I remember getting some other pennies and putting them in the drawer, hoping it would make her feel better. And it wasn't that those pennies in and of themselves were special, but what they represented to my mother was her relationship with her Nana. And I've never forgotten that. Going along in life, I have items and things. I still have the running shoes I wore when I broke five minutes in the mile. I still have the shirt I wore. I have a scrapbook full of pictures and bib numbers. I have training logs I've talked about with every workout I've ever done. So I understand the meaning and the, the meaning and the value that things can have for us. When somebody's life ends unexpectedly, and especially somebody who's very, very young, their items can take on a whole lot more value because it's like the last vestige of proof that they existed. And this is how it was for Molly and me and how my dealt in the beginning with her death. I've talked before about you want things to stay the same and nothing is the same, but then certain things you want to forget about. So it's just such an oxymoron trying to survive child loss and family decimation, which is what losing a child does. You have everybody grieving, everybody struggling, everybody needing what they can never have in the way that they used to have it. You know, Gracie needs a solid mother. I'm much more solid now than I was five years ago, but I will never be the mother she had before Molly died because I'd have to have Molly alive to be that mother. What does this have to do with things? <laughs> well, everything, quite honestly. You know, our life without Molly happened in an instant. And so once things started to settle down, I talked a lot about how holidays have, you know, manifested themselves and morphed over the years, and we can celebrate them a bit more now. I will point out we will not have a Christmas tree this year. We'll put the, the artificial one up in Gracie's room again, because that's just a lot of fun. And we have the Molly tree always. We're not quite there yet, but we have begun the conversation about how to give Jack a Christmas because he's a little baby and, he, you know, we live in a world that does Christmas. So however we decide to do it, it will be Jack's way and not trying to replicate what we had. There are times when I get very frustrated with raising Jack when people say you're starting over or doing it again. No, 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 I'm not. I, the way I did it before, it clearly didn't work. Molly's not here. I look at Jack as a passenger on the train that is my life and he will continue my journey with me. And he's a thing that didn't exist when Molly was here. So sometimes those things are easier to deal with. I read an article on a grief page about the orange cup. That was the name of the article. And the writer of this article was a mother who had lost her son. And there was a cup that he had drank out of. And maybe there was even still water or something in it. And she couldn't touch the cup. She couldn't empty or wash the cup for a long time. And it was on a shelf. And it was, in her mind, he had touched it and he had drank from it. And his lips had touched it. And he had had an interaction with this cup. And the cup 
represented in some measure proof that he existed and that a part of him was still here. And I cannot tell you how much that resonates with me. As someone that loves items and things anyway, and, and can look at things and have an instant memory, I really, really loved that article. And then it got me thinking about my relationship with things in regards to losing Molly. So I will say that when Molly died and we came home and planted ourselves on the bedroom, on the living room floor, tried to pick up life or continue on or do whatever, things became very, very, very different. Molly's room, Molly and Gracie's bedroom, we closed the door. Gracie went in for clothes and that was it. We just couldn't function with changing anything. We didn't make Molly's bed. We left her bed unmade the way that it was probably for over a year. It was just too painful. She, she had thrown those covers aside. It took us a long time. So in the beginning, I would say in the first year, the first 12 months after Molly died, nothing in our house left. <laughs> we became a bit of hoarders. I mean, things we brought in left. We didn't keep things that we were collecting. We had a big bin for cards and items related to her funeral and gifts that people gave us. You know, those were all dispersed around the house or utilized or put in special places. But anything that was here, the day Molly walked out that door and got into that ambulance remained here. And as we would clean up or go through, like when we were at the hospital up at Dartmouth, Kenny had somebody come in and clean the bathroom. And part of me wishes I could have cleaned the bathroom. That was my Molly's vomit all over that bathroom. I wanted to clean it. You know, Kenny had left dinner on the stove and it smelled. Like there's a part of me that wishes I could have just done that. Like somebody coming and cleaning it for me. It was mine to clean. And there's a process in that. That's how I would say goodbye. We could not find the sleeping bag that she had gotten sick on. Like it was, it disappeared. Like, where did it go? When cleaning the attic a couple of weeks ago, there was a garbage bag and I look in it and there's the perfectly clean rolled up sleeping bag and this Dunkin' Donuts t-shirt. And I just had this vague recollection of the significance of the t-shirt. I can't really remember, but that was the sleeping bag that she'd been so sick on in the pillow in there. And they were clean, but they were put in the attic. Like, and I don't remember if I put them there. Things are incredibly important to me now. In the year after Molly's death, anything that had been in this house when she was alive stayed in this house. Now, there was a process to this. We had given Molly a sewing machine for Christmas in 2014, and we never opened it. <laughs> Here, Molly, I'll buy you a sewing machine. And then I never facilitated her ever getting to use it. And she really wanted to. Her friend Keisha is a wonderful seamstress. So we gave Keisha the sewing machine for Christmas that year. And she was, are you sure? Are you sure? Of course we're sure. It needs to be used. And Molly and you would have used it together. We gave Keisha Molly's backpack. She had this Vera Bradley backpack. I remember school was starting and Gracie and I emptied it out. We just emptied it out into a bag and gave it to Keisha. And again, she was like, what, what? I have no idea what she, what she does with the backpack, if she ever used it. I think she uses it to keep Molly things in. But that just seemed like the right thing to do. But it took us a long time to give these things away or to change things. So significant to me in the first year, the costumes hanging on the door, anything Molly hung up. So the costumes in the front hall, these red jackets on the hooks in the kitchen, anything in her bedroom, her desk, things in her desk, where her shoes were. We line our shoes up outside the door. You come into the kitchen, there's shoes everywhere. We're working on that. And the shoes that Molly was utilizing at that time remained on the kitchen floor for about two and a half years. There were just things that we didn't want to change. We didn't want Molly to disappear any more than she already had. And I mean, she was it was a black hole. You know, there was just no Molly. I would say it took me over a year to really address and look at any of Molly's things. We had to bring some of her things to our attorneys in our lawsuit process. And that was difficult for me because they were Molly's. Like, don't lose this. Don't lose this. Don't lose this. Report cards. She wrote a paper on Malala. The school district gave me a disc with all of her schoolwork that was ever on the server there. 
you know, everything, like anything that was connected to Molly took on a huge importance to me. It doesn't mean anything in terms of the thing. The number of people who have said to me, well, you know, you, you look at it, you have a happy memory. Do you really need to keep a receipt? Do you really need to keep a dirty paper cup? Do you really need to, you know, when sometimes the answer is yes, until I'm ready, until I don't, I'm keeping it. There's a show on TV, Hoarding Buried Alive. And I used to really, really just wonder about those people. I just didn't understand, like, why would you not be able to throw away a rusty old rake or your 15th jacket? You know, you've got 15 red jackets. Why do you need all 15? Okay, just keep the five you like best or whatever. And I couldn't understand it. And there would be these long conversations between the host of the show and the doctors they would bring and the person in the home full of what looks like garbage. I completely understand it now. Over the five and a half years that Molly's been gone, there's been a process by which we've gone through things. So I would say nothing was given away except an item here or there. I remember early on, we gave away the bicycles that Molly and Gracie rode when they were up at Jonathan's, my brother Jonathan's. My mom bought them bikes to ride around when they came to Plymouth. I didn't have a big attachment to those, but I gave them to people that knew and loved Molly. Allowed Gracie to give things away that she felt she wanted to give away, items that were connected to her. But there wasn't a lot. In that first year and a half to two years, we really... We really just functioned, as I've said, in a bubble and the thing stayed. There are some things that stand out for me now. And, I, and what I'll do is I'll share the process by which I began to be able to let go of things. Things, You know, I, I've talked about the black hole in which I lived the first 12 months after Molly died. And the second year wasn't much different. I spent a lot of, a lot of my time numb, drinking a lot, taking a lot of prescription medicines and other drugs and things, and just trying to not fathom the fact that I was living this life. I just needed to somehow feel okay or feel nothing. I busied myself with coaching to the best of my ability. As the second year went along, I started to engage in a bit more work. 2018, so that's two years, was the year that the lawsuit wrapped up, this finality that she's never coming back. So how does this tie into physical things? Well, when you spend time in a lawsuit talking about the last minutes or days or hours of someone's life, they're still alive in your conversation because you're talking about what went wrong or what could have been done to keep have them still be alive. The mind is an amazing thing. And I've talked about this before. It really does take care of you and keep you functioning in times of extreme trauma and grief. I actually react really well sometimes in emergency settings. I get real calm, <laughs> barb mode. But this, Molly's death was decimating in that regard. So we end the lawsuit. We go into the summer of 2018 and the reality hits. She's never coming back. There's nothing left to work on now. She's gone. So the logical thing for me at this point was when I really decided, okay, I can't just continue to be a drunk. <laughs> I can't just numb myself forever. She's never coming back. So what, what is the legacy of my life? Is it that her death decimated me and, and I became nothing and useless or her death decimated me, but I somehow rallied around and pulled myself up and, and did things to find meaning in it and to make my life functional. It was also at this time that the baby dreams came back. In the process of spiritual mentoring and coming off all of my medicines and finding the brain tumors, all of these things were like big giant face slaps, so to speak all of a sudden, somebody taking my face and making me look at something I didn't want to see. Time was going along and Molly was never going to come back. And this affects every action in my life. To this day, it affects every action in my life. At this point, when I find out I have these brain tumors and now I'm stuck in my house recovering from brain surgery, 
two things had to happen. The room I'm sitting in here, as I said, was our big junk room. It was full of stuff, but I wasn't going to be able to go up and down stairs while I was healing from the from this particular surgery. So Kenny and I emptied this room out and put everything into the living room and we put a mattress on the floor in here so I could sleep down here. So if I got up in the night, I could just walk to the bathroom. You know, I had gone back upstairs and was sleeping in a bed upstairs and I needed something better than a floor bed because, you know, I was recovering from brain surgery. So I spent like six weeks in the house, really stuck in the house. I got my head shaved and I went out for dinner and breakfast a couple of times, but I didn't go anywhere. I, I, I really wasn't well enough to do much for about six weeks. I began the process of cleaning the house. And I mentioned that I had done that a little bit with this particular room because it was full of hospital things. And those were post-Molly's death things. And it was easy to sort of organize those things up and put them in bins. And then this room was a playroom and an office. So there were office materials and those were easy. So during the six weeks that I was recovering from brain tumor surgery, I did a Facebook Live every day. And I talked about the whole process of this and how I felt about it. And I wore Molly gear all the time. I felt so connected to Molly. I actually, and I was very full on into the spiritual mentoring at the time, you know, so I was, I was really trying to look at things that way. And so I was in the right place to begin this process. So we had, we had little tables on either side of the couch. We have a TV table with a drawer. I started with all the drawers, all the junk drawers, because they were full of all things Molly. Molly and Gracie were famous for like, we need to clean up. And they would just put things in drawers and close the drawers. So this was a walk down memory lane for me. I could throw away some things. I organized some things and I put lots of things back. The table that's up in my bedroom right now with a lamp on it, it used to be in the living room here. And it, it, its drawer is still full of little items and things that were belonged to Molly and Gracie at that time. And at some point they'll go maybe into a box with an explanation of what they were. Right now they're just in the drawer. But that drawer isn't even in the living room anymore. It's not where it was when she was here. All of these things are significant for me. And I'm not sure if if any of this makes any sense to any of you, all of you, I would think anyone listening would have some item that's important to them. You know, a, a lucky charm or a keepsake, you know, a letter that somebody wrote to them or a picture. All of these things matter. So during my brain tumor recovery time, so this is two and a half years now after Molly's death, I could really start focusing on the things. I did, I organized all the bins of pens and crayons and markers, which meant taking them from places like the playroom upstairs really, really putting them all together so that Molly's actual markers that were in the playroom got mixed up with the markers that were in my office. And, you know, the, the felt tip markers Molly really liked. And so I'd just gotten a new package of maybe a month before she died. And I collected those from all around the house and put those together. And, you know, all of this was processed. And I know some of you must be thinking, oh my gosh, it's pens and scotch tape. And, but it was just items for crafting that Molly would use. It was things that were here when she was here. And it was just difficult for me to move them around or consider getting rid of them or using them up. This was the first ability for me to do this. I did this during that time. All of her, all of the junk drawers and all of my office supplies. My office had been in the front room. We had ultimately made that into a living room. Kenny had emptied it one day. It was just full of junk. In the time after Molly's death, that was an, another junk room as well. We really just lived in the living room with the blankets on the floor, the kitchen, the bathroom. That was where I lived. And then Kenny would go upstairs to bed. So all of this process, Molly's ambulance just went by again. Hi, Molly. <laughs> Molly was in ambulance number five. So when it goes by our house, I always wave to it. Another thing that has meaning to me. As I recovered from brain tumor surgery and carried along with reorganizing the house, I went through a lot of things and, and created lots and lots of new space and cleared out space and organized to have a better handle on things. But now what I had was bins and bins of things all over the place. Maybe not a big mess, but still things, you know, bins covering the floor. This room was full of bins not too long ago. 
there were other things. So I've talked about the dance costumes in the hallway. They hung up. Gracie got to the point where she was ready to take hers and organize them and hang them up. I asked her, did she want to take Molly's? And she said, no, she did not want Molly's to go. And so Molly's didn't go. We had our ceilings redone right around the time I had my brain tumor surgery. And our carpenter, he covered those, the front hall ceilings. That's where, that's where the dance costumes are. And he covered them in plastic and worked around them. I didn't want them moved because her hands put them there. You know, these are the things, there are two red coats that hang on the hooks in the kitchen and they're still there. Now they've been moved. They've been taken off and put back on. That's a bit different, but that's where they were when she died. I took a picture of her on her 13th birthday and behind her on the windowsill was a flashlight and a water bottle. They're not there now. I finally, I finally cleaned off that windowsill, but I didn't want it to change. They were there when she was there. So they have to stay there because that reminds me she was here. And there's a time where that reminder is necessary. And then eventually that reminder would become a burden. You know, and, and there are times when I look at things and I think, oh my gosh, they've been here this long. Getting the shoes out of the kitchen, that was a big, that was a big step. Gracie's and Molly's tap shoes got mixed up. And for like six months, Gracie danced in one of her tap shoes and one of Molly's tap shoes, a size six and a size eight. They were two different sizes. And she just, that was how they got thrown in the bag after the picture night. She couldn't face putting Molly's shoe back in the bag and wearing her own. These are our relationships with things. And I go back to the orange cup. If I came home and something had been moved, so Molly's lunchbox, her Vera Bradley lunch bag, is on the butcher block. And there's a little note from a friend named Sophie that's still in the pocket. We took what was in it out. <laughs> you know, it was probably leftover food and such, but it got moved. The whole butcher block got emptied and it was moved and I was livid because it hadn't been moved yet. It was Molly's hand that put it there and it got moved. And I really lost it. And I went and found it and I put it back on the butcher block. It's still on the butcher block. And right now it's holding some items that have been here and there that were Molly's. And I thought, okay, we can take these off the coffee table now. I'll put them in the lunch bag. It's a process. But I, when I look at the butcher block, I see the lunchbox. Someday, and even talking about it a little makes me get anxious in my tummy, which means maybe it's time to either pack it away or to use it in our rotation of lunch bags. We use them for Jack's frozen milk now. This is the process of things. As I worked through 2019, then, you know, Kenny had his kidney transplant. We had all of these health things going on. They're really getting into creating Jack, our life became much more meaningful. So then we get into Gracie's senior year, which was my brain tumor year. And she wanted to go back upstairs. And so she had. For a long time, she just slept in the room as it was. The one thing she needed to do was move the beds. When she got into her bed, they were sort of an L-shaped. They were perpendicular to one another, gave them a lot of floor space. She didn't want to move anything of Molly's, but she didn't want her bed where it was. So we pushed to her bed right up next to Molly's. So it was like a big double bed. But let me tell you, we vacuumed that bed, but Gracie slept in the sheets and pillowcases and blankets that had been on that bed the night that Molly left. It was too much to change. These things I know must sound extreme and not make sense, but these are the things that kept us grounded in the fact that she really was here. Because there are times when I wonder, did she actually exist? And when I ponder that my life once had Molly in it, depending on the day, like today, it upsets me. Like, I can't believe she was here and she isn't now. Like, how can this even be true? And then I don't even want to think of that I used to have a life with Molly. But I did. And it's not that I want to forget her, but here again is the, is the oxymoron of grief, <laughs> the conundrum, the, the hypocritical thinking is that I don't want to think about it and I don't want to forget it. And how do you do those two things at once? And items come into play here. As I've gone along in this process, it's interesting the step-by-step -step things that happen. Just this summer, I'm sitting here looking at my living room and it's the same rug, which I refuse to get rid of yet. The same curtains, the same wallpaper since we've lived here. The furniture that we brought with us, my parents bought, my mom and dad bought in 1988 when they moved to Webster. And when I bought my house on Alvin Street in Concord in 1997, that furniture came there. They moved into my apartment and I had their living room furniture. And when Kenny and I bought this house 
in 2000, the furniture came here and it matched. I remember it was, it was beige with this fine blue trim. And that's what our, that's our curtains are beige with fine blue in there. And so it was this perfect match. And so Molly and Gracie only ever knew that furniture and I refused to get rid of it. Those couches were disgusting. They were like th over 30 years old. I mean, you know, you sat down, you, your butt touched the floor almost, but I just couldn't, I just couldn't do it. When we were really reorganizing the house this summer and getting ready, or this fall actually, and getting ready for some TV interviews, we decided that we really needed to get rid of these coat sofas. And I was ready. A good friend of mine, Hugh McGregor, Virginia's husband came over. He had a truck. We did a dump run. And Hugh and I carried those couches out of here. And we cleaned and vacuumed the floor. And I'm looking at these green couches that my good friend Deb gave me. You know, her little boys that are Gracie and Molly's age, roughly, you know, grew up bouncing around on these couches and they're wonderful. And so I look at them and they have meaning to me. They belong to somebody that I've known since I was in high school, at college. They weren't here when Molly was here. So they don't have that, oh my God, Molly sat here and now she isn't here. But they're in a room that Molly spent a lot of time in. And the room is set up the same way because it's kind of the only way you can set it up. You know, all of those to me are good things. But that was a huge change. Coach Ludy, when, when we bought his house, I took everything out of it and put it in my garage. I wasn't ready to get, get rid of any of his stuff either. His death was incredibly traumatic for me. And so now Coach's couch is in my office and I get to sit down on that couch. <laughs> and I sit pretty low on that one too. It's probably ready to be replaced, but I'm not ready for that. But there are items of Coach's that some have gone back to his family and some have gone to people that knew Coach and you know, some of the dishes and things that his family left behind went to the fundraiser I just did for the Molly B Foundation. I couldn't have given those things away a year ago. There's just such a process to this. I have a good, good friend named Shahana, and she lost her mom when she was a child. And she is a really helpful person. Another one, another person who I consider one of my very best friends. And she, I met her as a student. She was a six-year-old at Walker School when I first met her. And then I had her as a high school student. One of my favorite pictures is Shahada in her graduation gown in my health classroom at Concord High School. She and I, you know, she understands traumatic loss and she's much further into her journey than I am into mine. She was, you know, a young girl when her mom passed away. So she's grown up without a mother. She's now a mother. So she has a very different reality than I do. But the gut-wrenching loss is the same. And she often grounds me. Okay, it's okay to be sad, but don't forget you can be happy. You know, she's, she's at a point in her grief where she has a much better hand, handle on her ability to do that. And I'm so grateful for that. But she shared with me a story about a cup, a glass that her mother had gotten for her at Disney. And it, it just represented this amazingly good memory with her and her mom. It got broken or lost. I don't remember the exact details. I believe it got broken and then thrown away. And she had no idea how much the glass actually meant until it was gone. And so she wrote to me to say, I get it now, because I have talked about this a lot. It made me cry just because, because I know how I feel if certain things disappeared. Just, it's just this tangible piece. It really is nothing. It's just a glass. It can break and be thrown away like a million other glasses can except that that glass had an event and a person connected to it. And so these things are fairly consistent, I think, in a lot of people's experiences of what they go through, something that mattered to them that's gone now. Marching along through my journey, I've been able to share a lot and get a lot of support from people around the value of things. Kenny doesn't notice, for Kenny, it's family videos, but I don't, I don't think of them as things so much as like proof of experiences. I, I can't watch them at any great length of time because it, may, it just upsets me too much. He watches them a lot because he wants to hear Molly's voice. I call him, I, I call her phone. <laughs> her phone is still, I pay $80 a month for that phone and I will keep it forever. I think I'll probably make it the phone for the Molly B Foundation at some point so that it has a tangible use. But you know, that phone, it's her phone. I don't want anything ever to happen to it. We've gone along and little by little, we've been able to get rid of things. So 
going into 2019, after Gracie graduates high school, 2019 into 2020, Gracie really decided I want my bedroom to be my bedroom, not, not mine and Molly's anymore. It looks like a bedroom for a ninth and a seventh grader, which it did as time has gone along. So that was when I was first getting ready for the TV people to come. And I called Karen Kenny. And I knew she would understand my, my fixation on things. I also knew that if I was ready to let go of something, she is somebody that would be able to walk me through it so that I could let it go and feel okay about it and process it with me if I regretted it later. And I think sometimes if you're a person suffering, suffering from extreme grief and you don't have a church that you support on or you're, you're not sure you believe in God or whatever, a spiritual mentor, somebody that understands how to guide you in a universal way. If you're an atheist and don't believe in God, can still get so much value out of the types of things that KK does because there are so many different ways to view God. You know, when I look at a sunset, I, I think of God. There are a million scientific explanations for sunsets. KK's first visit to help me <laughs> clean my house, we started with Gracie's room. And so about two weeks prior to that, another really important person in my grief journey who I've just come to know well in the past year is a woman named Lisa. Lisa Peters, she's the best. And she's a bit like me, harsh, outspoken, a bit impulsive. Both have very angular features and long hair. I met her at CrossFit, so she's a CrossFit friend, but we, we just share so much. And I think I've talked about her before. And she came over with me the day that we dismantled Gracie's room. And she's another person that is helpful for me because if I start to lose my shit, she's not bothered by it. She understands it. She can be supportive. She'll be my voice sometimes if she senses I can't say what I need to say. And so we took apart the beds and we put them in the blue room, which is the room I'm sleeping in now. We call it the blue room. We just filled that room up with stuff and emptied it out. And there they were. There was this big empty room and I took pictures of it. And I remember sending the pictures to KK actually to document the process. Gracie's full-size bed was Coach's bed. Here's another meaningful piece of furniture that Gracie gets to sleep on. I, I just take so much comfort in it because, you know, somebody that was so helpful for me in my life slept in that bed and now Gracie gets to sleep in it. And we set up a room for her and we took so many things off the walls. However, we did not disrupt the Molly wall and Molly's wall was above her bed. And, and we initially didn't move Molly's desk. We left it at the foot of the bed and the Molly wall remains at the nail polish and the name Molly and, you know, her bulletin board, all those things remain on the wall unchanged. Some of Gracie's have come down. Some of hers are up as well. And I said to Gracie, are you ready to take this down? No, not yet. We don't have to do it yet. So we don't have to do it yet is Gracie's way of saying, I'm not ready to take it down. That remains, but we spent a lot of time just cleaning and organizing and setting up that room to make it Gracie's. The final step, and it was hard for all of us, was moving the desk. So the story around Molly's desk is that I was using it, but I had bought it for her. Gracie had a desk. They were sharing a room. They'd redone it. Molly needed her own desk. And I was actually at work, working at the desk when she came down and wanted it. I believe I've told this story. And I said, yeah, you can have it now. And I just turned my computer off and I took everything off it. And I dumped the drawers on the floor in a big pile. And I gave her the desk and we moved it upstairs. And I remember going up like an hour later and having one of those moments where I felt like, oh, I did it. I did it right. They love each other so much. Like I just loved it. They were each sitting at their desk and they were doing their own thing with their little lamps on. Each desk had a lamp. It was all set up. So moving the desk was significant and it wasn't lost on Gracie, but we did. We picked up the desk and moved it. And it was the final piece of really moving stuff that had been there for Molly. The dirt under the desk is still there on the woodwork. <laughs> we haven't washed the woodwork yet. So you look down at this empty space in the dirt, it's still there. That will come next. So these are for us how process of things have been. It's just a process. You know, for me, when we emptied Molly's room, I insisted that we go through the garbage. I just wanted to see what was in there. What had she thrown away? What was there? And fortunately, there was nothing significant in there, but I didn't know. And I didn't want to just wrap it up and throw it away. That was Molly's. It was right by her bedside table. In the drawers to the bedside table, which are now my bedside table, all those things still remain intact, the stuff that was in there. And 
that was a combination of Gracie's and Molly's items. The water bottle that was on her bedside table actually is in a bin now, and it still has the water in it that she had that night. We just didn't feel that we needed to dump it out. It's in there. It's safe. There's a water bottle in our bathroom upstairs that is Molly's that hasn't been touched. It's still, there's no water in that one, but it's still, it's decorative. It's nice. It matches the bathroom. It's on the shelf. These are things that just become difficult to move. You know, when I walk around and look at things, there's a shelf above our TV and I had emptied it to put all the Christmas decorations up. And, and the year 2016 was, I have talked about how chaotic it was. And I never, ever went down to the basement and got the box of things that used to be on the shelf, pictures and items. So it was nothing. It was just empty and Molly things, you know, gifts and things got put up there. So we finally sort of reorganized it and made it like sort of a little dedication to Molly and Gracie and sisters. And there's some pictures of Katie up there as well. All of this is, is a part of the grief process. All of this is about moving along through the death of someone you really love and how do you keep them in your life without losing them? And how do you let them go without forgetting them? You know, it's just all of these things are so difficult. So as we moved through, you know, last year and now I'm growing a baby and then TV people are coming and now our house really needs to be livable. We've just now gone through a really big phase of cleaning. We got another dumpster. We continue to move things out of the barn and the garage, just getting rid of so much stuff. We went to the attic and the attic is mostly full of my life, but so much Molly and Gracie and things that they outgrew and toys and things. I wasn't ready. I'm not ready. It's in the attic. It's not bothering anybody. It's safe. No, it's not doing anyone any good either. In the process of cleaning the barn the first couple of times, we came across the scooter that Molly won in fifth grade. I will keep that forever because that's related to Habaku and that beautiful story that Mr. Barassa told. Uh, their bikes, they had the bikes that they rode right up until the year Molly died. Those were their bikes. Those sat in our barn until this past summer. I gave them to the Judge family. That family has gotten a lot of Molly stuff, lots and lots of clothes. Anytime we, we go through the, our bins and there are clothing, outgrown clothing, it goes to the Judge family. And we'll continue to do that. I love when I see pictures and one of them is wearing a Molly shirt, something that Molly or Gracie wore. So we gave them the bikes. Anastasia got Molly's violin, her first pink violin. So somebody in that family will someday play violin. When we look for dance things, tights and little teeny tap shoes and those kinds of things, that, that's the first place those things will go as well. It's easy for us to give that family these things because they knew Molly and were connected to Molly. You know, when they're worn completely out and there are holes in the knees and they're ready to be thrown away, I don't feel bad about it. And they aren't collecting dust here anymore. That's a huge process. You know, the getting rid of items that really, that they used that were here. Jump ropes and things like this. The playroom upstairs is still really full of a lot of things. They had started the process of cleaning it. Folding up the little pink and purple chairs and the funky lamp and putting those out in the barn was difficult for me because they had organized it and set it up. It was incomplete. They hadn't finished. The shelves are still full of toys and things that they will never play with. So, and the time will come. I can go through and look at those things and see maybe what can Jack play with. There, there are some toys on the floor over here that were Molly's and Gracie's that Jack-Jack can chew on and play with now. So those things are coming full circle. I guess my biggest message in this and, my, and the biggest piece of this is that it's not wrong or bad to be attached to things. Everything is a process. And for us, the process was slow. But in the past six months, I've gotten rid of all of the furniture that was in the blue room. Now, none of this was specifically connected to Molly, but that room was the way it was in the last two years of her life. So she knew it that way. Melise lived in that room. It had a lot of memories, but it wasn't functional for us anymore. And I had a barn full of furniture. So I was able to give, I gave actually the bed frame and the dresser to a really, really wonderful person that has a sweet connection with Molly, Erica. So I know that that furniture is in a good place. 
Some of it I put out on the front lawn and gave away. Others I, I've given to other people. So I know that these pieces of furniture that, that are salvageable are in happy homes. And the things that I couldn't get rid of live in the barn. But the point is I could make the change. So now I have a bedroom that I sleep in with Jack. It is nothing like it was when Molly was there. But it's the room that was Molly and Gracie's first bedroom. I can look at the room and imagine it the way it used to be and feel good about it and feel like I did the right thing. Up to now, going through our house, so the red coat still hang in the kitchen. The dance costumes still hang on the front hallway stairs. The wall is still the same in the bedroom. There are lots and lots of items in our house that are unchanged for when Molly was here. Lots of the toys in the playroom. I'm looking at a closet that is full of dance bags and theater things and all of Molly's schoolwork. I have not gone through that yet. So it's a process. Am I close to being done? Absolutely not. I think the most poignant thing for me, and this will make no sense because I know all of you will think, you know, I have a, I have a bag with Molly's and Gracie's braids in it. So I have her hair. When I got my head shaved, we braided it before we, we cut it and shaved it. And so I have my braid. I can talk about that and not cry. One of the biggest things for me, and to this day, I refuse to throw any of these away, are receipts that are dated before she died or receipts that are connected to something that we did together. So Gracie and Molly and I had taken a trip to Massachusetts in February, during February vacation to go to a museum before she died. And it was a very, very upsetting day to try to make it up to them for making them so angry. It's much too personal to talk about in a podcast, but it was a really devastating day. Someday I'll talk about it or maybe I'll write about it. You know, I had two really distraught, upset girls. And so we went to the mall in Salem and I just let them shop and buy things. And so I had all these receipts from that day. And we went to Bath and Body Works and Molly bought this vanilla candle. Gracie and I finally lit last Christmas. We finally lit the vanilla candle when we were putting up the fake tree. But those receipts, I have the shopping spree that at that same mall, the Rockingham Mall that Gracie and Molly went on with my sister Johanna and my mother when I was in Amsterdam. I have them all, the receipt for the pink dress that she's buried in, all the receipts for everything, sorry, everything they bought. It just reminds me that on that day when I wasn't there, they were doing something fun with two people that loved them, with my mom and my sister. But when I come across, like we were cleaning in the garage, I came across an old checkbook and a bunch of receipts from like 2013. And they were from Claire's and Friendly's and Applebee's and the movie theater. And I just remembered trips with them and things that we would do. I took them to the movies a lot. and We'd go to Applebee's to eat. And I have receipts from those things. And, and I know it's a piece of paper. It's a very faded piece of paper, but I, I, I just don't throw them away. If I find an empty pill bottle with my name on it and it's empty, but I had it before she died, it goes into the bin with the receipts. I know this must sound crazy and I, I really don't care if it does because whatever seemingly meaningless thing you're connected to or attached to because I represent your dead person, then you have to just have my permission to be okay. But it's okay to hold on to these things. And then if they still make you cry years later, then the time to let them go hasn't come yet. I do know that the way I'll let them go when I'm ready to do it is, is in a fire. Burning things, it might sound violent, it isn't. It's a way Gracie and Molly and I dealt with a lot of things that bothered us. When our relationship with Robin and Flips ended, the first time around, we burned all of our clothing, all of our Flip stuff, hundreds of dollars worth of clothing. And what you do is the burning is the catharsis, the letting go. But as the smoke goes up to the sky, you talk about good memories, good things. And so I know the day will come where I'll be, I'll be able to put all those things into a fire and send them up and be okay with it. I am so far away from that day right now. At any rate, that's the final, the really the final thing for me, the final thing I can't let go of, those receipts. The other thing that's hard for me, and these are things I'll never let go of. I can't say never. I think that would be a gracie that my decision is all these little journal entries and little blurbs that Molly wrote. I have them, you know, I, I have a box. And Molly was a lot like me. She'd start a journal and not finish it, but she loved buying new journals. And so 
I have them of hers and they're just such funny things. I found a card that she wrote to me where she was upset that I wouldn't just let her cry, that I always, she always felt I didn't understand her. It was heartbreaking. I found a letter, Molly and Gracie had put together a little bag, their runaway bag, if Kenny and I were having a serious fight that they could go stay with somebody. And in it was a note that would be left for us with all the reasons they were leaving. And, you know, I, I don't know that I could ever throw that away as hard as that is. It's just evidence of what was going on at the time. And it reminds me of things. So I'll end here. I always have such good plans to sound organized and together when I do these podcasts. I'm sorry if this one was disjointed or jumbled. Sometimes that's how grief is. It's disjointed and jumbled. But I just look at things. And I'll close with my most recent sort of experience with things. And that was costumes, dance costumes that Molly wore. So we just had the Christmas show. And I'll talk a lot about that in my next episode. But Every time there was a dance on stage or somebody sitting on Santa's lap in a costume that Molly wore or sat on his lap wearing, I had a real catch in my throat. I remembered Molly at that size. Oh, I remember Molly in that one. I remember Molly in that one. And, you know, there has not been a Christmas show without a band's off in it. <laughs> little teaser for next episode. Those are things that are tough for me. Those, and those aren't my things. Those costumes don't belong to me. But when I see them, you know, I saw a girl backstage in a blue ballet costume and Molly had gotten her blue ballet costume for the recital the year that she died. It hung on my bathroom door. One day it wasn't there because she wasn't going to wear it. Somebody took it back to CDA. So these are things that are difficult. So in your grief journey, as you go through whatever it is you're grieving, whether it's a breakup, whether it's the loss of a pet, whether it's the loss of a parent, whether it's the loss of a job, whether it's an unexpected move and you can't live where you used to live. If you have things, physical things that are important to you, no, you don't want physical things to guide your decision-making in your life, but you do want to be able to pick up something and have an emotion and a feeling from it and have it matter to you and hold it in your hand. And, and the physical proof in your hand of something that no longer exists, to me, is an important piece of grief. It's been a huge piece of my grief process. I think it's that way too. If I were to end this podcast on any specific note, it would be this. In your next couple of days, in your day-to-day -day life, and getting ready for the holidays and cleaning a closet or whatever, when you come across something that's special to you, look at it for a minute and remember what, why was this special to me? What, is this, what does this remind me of? And then ask yourself if you need to keep it. I'm not suggesting you get rid of anything, but in my process with KK, going through bins and bins of items, room after room, getting ready for the TV people. And then, okay, the TV people have left and now I just have all these bins and I, I, can't, I can't get through them on my own. What do I do? How do I do this? One thing that KK did with me that was super helpful was to really look at it. Okay, here it is. Do I really need to keep it or am I ready to let it go and think about it, take a picture of it, whatever, and send it away? It was amazing the number of articles of clothing I was able to get rid of. I also felt if I was wearing something that I wore when Molly was alive, I didn't want to get rid of it because I'd look at it and remember that time. That actually has been a part of my journey that I'm, I'm happy I'm moving along because that those memories don't always evoke a happy memory. And it, so if it doesn't, if it brings you unhappiness, you know, free yourself from it. But I got rid of a lot more things. And then I helped Kenny get rid of his clothes for our clothing drive. And it was the same thing. All right, Kenny, do you really need to keep that sweater? So it was very, very helpful to me. And, and in the weeks since I did the clothing drive and the TV people have been here and all of that, when I come across something, I ask myself, do I need to keep it? All right, Barbara, do you need to keep this? And if the answer is yes, I have a drawer that it goes in, a few drawers or a bin. Sometimes I go back a little bit later and take it out and throw it away or move it along. I've gotten better at that too. And I did that in the clothing a couple of times. No, no, I need to keep this. No, you know what? I don't need to keep it. And, and KK would just say, good job, Barb, good job. So look at your things. Keep the things that matter to you. You know, even if people think you're a clutterhound or, or your house is too full, it's a process. And the last thing you want to do is throw something away that 
you wish you hadn't because you can't get it back. And it's one more thing in my mind that you've lost. As always, I hope as we march through the holiday season that those of you that are suffering and struggling are doing okay. There's no right or wrong way to do this. Absolutely not. The right way is the way that you need to do it or that you find yourself doing it. You know, I wish I could go back and not have been inebriated for two years, but I can't. And at the time, perhaps that was all I could do. Do what you need to do, beautiful people. And those of you that are fortunate enough and lucky enough to be in a place where you can really celebrate the holidays, please do. That's a wonderful thing. Just be mindful of of people who are grieving and their relationship to the things in their life and the things that matter. You might not understand, but you don't need to. Just acknowledgement, acceptance, and validation. That receipt from Bath and Body Works is important to me, is all I need. It won't always be in my drawer, but it's there right now, and that's where it will stay. Do something nice for somebody. Do something nice for yourself. Bring happiness to someone. And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Tiny Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.